you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther. We'll be in chapter 3. Going to walk through the entire chapter. If you're visiting us this morning and you do not own a Bible, it is found on page 433 in the Bible in the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. Esther chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by the couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. 
June 13th, 1936, in Germany, the Nazis held a ceremony commemorating and celebrating the new sailing vessel that they have. Deputy Ferrer Rudolf Hess was the keynote speaker, gave a speech, and Adolf Hitler was at his right side. And there were a number of attendees, hundreds, if not thousands. They were filling the speech that Deputy Hess was given. So much so, and you could see it because a photo was taken. And in that photo, everyone was giving the Nazi salute, all but one. Many supporters, one protested, one opposed, one resisted. August Land Messer, in his defiance, he folded his arms while he was surrounded by a people who gave the salute. If people would have noticed it, this nonconformity would have resulted in possibly the loss of his life. Because this nonconformity would have been interpreted as resistance. And there are consequences for resistance. Nonconformity. Christians, we know this all too well. As God in his grace has called us out of the world, called us out of darkness into light, and tells us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. So much so that we're commanded this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We are nonconformists, and if we are faithful to King Jesus, we will stand out. Jesus expects us to, so much so that he gives the language of calling the church the salt of the earth and the light of the world. His people are intended to stand out. And beloved, as we are faithful to this, more often than not, we will be chided by man. We will be condemned by man. In the midst of the persecution that we or to experience that we will experience, Jesus commands us to remain faithful, no matter the consequences that we may encounter on account of his name. Beloved, there are consequences for being faithful to God, and we're going to see that in this morning's passage. So our big idea for this morning, for this text, it's an exhortation for us, and it's obey King Jesus despite the consequences. Obey King Jesus despite the consequences. We have three points of exhortation for us. First, be faithful to Christ. Second, expect hostility. Third, endure persecution. 
be faithful to Christ, expect hostility, and endure persecution. First exhortation, be faithful to Christ. Look at verse 1. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman. Now, last week we saw Mordecai, who was a Jew, who was at the right place at the right time under the sovereignty of God. He heard the plot of assassination on the king, and he reported it. It was recorded. And so you would have expected that if anyone who would have gotten a promotion, you would have expected to read a different name. Yet in the mysterious providence of God, Mordecai wasn't honored at that time. Over the years, his deed was overlooked. He was not rewarded at that time for his faithfulness, and this was God being good to Mordecai. He wasn't honored, but someone was. The text says, Haman. And the details of Haman is very important. It says that he was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He is promoted in rank and gave him a higher position than all the others. Haman, he wasn't a Persian. He too was a foreigner in this land. He was an Agagite. And beloved, this detail, if we're not careful, we can easily read over it. But this detail is very important, which I will unpack in just a second. Haman was second in command. We don't know why, whether a deed was done or him being loyal, but we do know that he was promoted. And because he was promoted, King Ahasuerus commanded for him to receive a royal greeting. For those who see them to pay homage and bow down before him. When in verse 2 it says the entire royal staff bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Most obeyed, but Mordecai was defiant. And in fact, the officials continued to talk with him, and yet he persisted in his defiance. Why? This is the same Mordecai who encouraged his cousin, whom he has adopted, Esther, to compromise, to conceal her identity, and yet here, that same Mordecai is being defiant. That same Mordecai ended up confessing his identity. The very reason that he chose to rebel against this command, he says in verse 4, since he had told them he was a Jew. His identity was the reason. Now, if you're familiar with Israel's history, it'll help paint color to the scene of what's happening here. As we saw in chapter 2, Mordecai, he was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a descendant of King Saul. And here in chapter 3, we read of the details about Haman. Haman was an Agagite. He was an Amalekite, a descendant of King Agag. 
Now, if you know Israel's history, you know that there is enmity between these two ethnicities. There is hostility. The Amalekites didn't fear the Lord, and they attacked his covenant people. In Exodus chapter 17, after the Jews were delivered from slavery in Egypt, when Israel was vulnerable, it was the Amalekites who attacked them. God brought victory. And at the end of chapter 17 of Exodus, he promised to be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. When Israel was on the cusp of entering the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, God reminded the Israelites of the Amalekites' attack, and he commanded Israel to destroy them. Israel came into the promised land in the book of Judges. The Amalekites were some of the ones who attacked them and brought them into slavery. In 1 Samuel 15, God commanded King Saul to destroy the Amalekites. Saul didn't entirely obey. He spared King Agag. See here, beloved, the beef between the two has been going on for a very long time. The Malachites, they hated God, they hated his covenant people, and so Saul, not Saul, but so Mordecai's defiance, he wasn't defying for defiance's sake. There was real enmity between these two ethnicities. It's similar to civil rights activists in Birmingham, not conceding to the orders of public serviceman Bull Connor. And the reason is because Bull Connor was a staunch racist. He was very adamant, and he was violent in the opposition of integration. And we'd be crazy to think that hatred of God's covenant people and the old covenant was a thing in the past because even today, beloved, the church, God's covenant people, still experience hatred and opposition from the enemies. They hated our King, Christ, the Son of God, the very one who was God's gift to the world, who gives life, who laid down his life that we may have life. They oppose him, and so they also oppose those who identify with him. Jesus warns us of this in John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19, when he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If, the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Beloved, as we are faithful to King Jesus, we will not be commended by his enemies. We will be chided. They would say our message of love is hate speech. They will brand our ethics as outdated and oppressive. Because we identify with Jesus, they will despise us. And as we live in this world, there is an expectation for us to pledge our allegiance to the world and to others. Well, Christ expects our allegiance to be to him alone. Beloved, in this world, our allegiance and loyalty will be tested. 
People will ask and demand for us to acquiesce and comply with ungodliness. They will tell us to renounce our faith in Christ or to censor our Christian identity. They would tell us to embrace without reservation a sinful lifestyle. Do not disagree. Bosses may tell us to conceal specific details in books. They may even tell us to bow our knee to the world's obsession with human autonomy. It's opposition. The attesting, the testing of allegiance, it is not unique for our generation. Every generation, the church's loyalty has been tested. And as we faithfully follow Jesus out of a love for him, being controlled by his spirit, controlled by his love and governed by his spirit, we give up ourselves in response to him. It is because Jesus is king, his kingship impacts everything. It's where we refuse. There is resistance. Because we are loyal to King Jesus and beloved, even our resistance should be done charitably. In the very passage, Mordecai just makes known that he didn't bow because he was a Jew. Our resistance should be marked by love and humility. Peter gets at this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. We want Christ to be magnified in all that we do, in our motives, in our manner, and in our methods. Even our loyalty to Jesus, when it leads to our defiance of what's being asked for us, beloved, even that should be set apart. So we're not repaying evil for evil. We're not speaking in a condescending manner. We're not being contentious. Instead, we're being charitable, standing firm on our convictions and being courageous because we want our content and our conduct to make much of Jesus, to give credence to the reality that we follow him. It should be so set apart that it confounds our enemies. That man, you are opposing me, and yet you're doing it very lovingly. Beloved, as we are faithful to Jesus, we will stand out. We are to be holy and humble misfits. But as we do this, not everyone will be happy. And so we can and should expect hostility, which brings us to the second point. Expect hostility. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Haman was notified 
of Mordecai's rebellion, and then he witnessed it for himself. For himself. He was enraged over this defiance because he was a very prideful man. As you will see throughout the book of Esther, Haman only concerned, oh, Haman's only concern was himself. Here we see respect demanded. That respect demanded was respect denied. And in his response, he resolved not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill his people. Genocide of the Jews to wipe the earth clean from this ethnic people. This is sin. God's made known in his word that thou shalt not murder. He even set up government to oppose and restrain evil. The consequence is life for a life. And yet here we see the one who is second in command is planning to kill all of God's people. The passage later on refers to Haman as an enemy of the Jews. His target for this people was fueled by his disdain for them. Beloved, this is racism. Ethnic partiality. People want to doubt or question the reality of racism, well, it is in the Bible. Esther chapter 3. People want to doubt the possibility of racism being institutionalized, it is in the Bible. Esther chapter 3. This is Haman who is second in command, and yet he's plotting the terrorization genocide of the Jews. The reality is, beloved, where there is no love for God, that reality has horizontal ramifications, as we see with Haman. Tozer, A.W. Tozer was right when he said that the most important thing about us is what we think about God. And that is so true because our theology, what we view of God, how we view God, it impacts and touches everything. Where there is no love for God, there will be no proper treatment of those who are made in his image. Men, women, or children, and people of different ethnicities. Beloved, the reality is theology informs anthropology. But one, if one doesn't love God truly, they will not treat man rightly. Which is why you have the reality that idolatry leads to injustice and oppression. We can journey through history. Think about the Rwanda genocide, the caste system in India, the Holocaust. Bringing it closer to home, think about slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. These are governmental and societal injustices that needed to be addressed. And the error began theologically. No fear or love for God will result in the distreatment of his image bearers. This is inconsistent with the character of God because God is impartial. He has made man in his image. And all who are saved by grace... 
He extends the gospel to Christ. He extends the gospel of Christ to anyone, Jew and Gentile, and anyone, Jew and Gentile, can repent and believe and be saved by grace. Jesus' bride does not consist of one ethnicity, but it is multi, she is multi-ethnic. And since God is impartial, so should the church. James 2, our scripture reading makes known that we're to show no favoritism as we hold to the faith of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Partiality of any kind is contrary to the Christian faith. Racism, ethnic partiality. It is egregious and this sin has stamped our country. It has stained our country. And the consequences of it we experience every Sunday morning. For the most segregated hour in the country is Sunday morning. And why? The stain of racism. Beloved, the church is to oppose this heinous sin. We have a gospel, a message that is the primary solution to the problem of racism. Because racism is first and foremost a sin, and it begins in the heart. It dehumanizes people who are made in his image, and the blood of Jesus is so sufficient that it can cleanse Racist, and it could make those make people repent of that and become righteous by faith. The psalm was said, the, the hymn was say that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, all their guilty stains, and that includes racism. Friends, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I'm glad that you are here today. I want you to know that there is no sin that God can't forgive. There is no debt that Jesus' blood can't cancel. There is no sin that his blood can't cover. In our country, racism, it is viewed as the unpardonable sin. But friends, that is not true with the kingdom of God. Any and all sins can be covered and forgiven and cleansed by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. Sin stains us and we can't cleanse ourselves. But God can and does through Jesus. I would implore you this very day, turn from your rebellion and place your faith in Christ who is merciful and loving. The very fact that he came into the world was to save sinners. And there's not one who's too far gone that God can't save. Beloved, notice, when I say that the gospel is the primary solution to racism. It's not the only solution, but it is the primary one. We need just laws to restrain this evil. Just 
laws are an effective and needed solution to prevent the perpetuation and the institutionalization of racism. And not only just laws, but we need the just laws to be applied without partiality. Which is why we preach the gospel. We live justly. We pursue justice. We pray for just laws and we pray for the impartial application of them. Now, a society may be more just. Here we see Ahasuerus, not Ahasuerus, but Haman, fueled with hate. In verses nine, 7 and 9, he begins to carve out the details. It says, in the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. So Haman, he begins to work through the details. First thing he does is cast lots, which is essentially like dice, roll them, except he ain't trying to get dollars. He rolls dice for a decision. Number falls on 12. So the 12th month is when he would love for the Jews to be executed. And even this is under the sovereignty of God. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. In the next few verses, Haman, he very shrewdly approached the king. He says, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So Haman, he was vague in his presentation. He concealed who exactly he was referring to, in what ways do they not obey the king and what commands were disobeyed. In fact, he presented it as if it was a good thing for the king to get rid of them. And in verse 9, he seeks to buy the edict, offering 375 tons of silver, which is like 10,000 silver coins. And without investigation, without looking into it, the king, he signs off on it in verses 10 and 11. He removed his signet ring and gave Haman the permission to do whatever he wanted. He signed off on the genocide. And this was all because of one man's refusal to bow. Resulted in the plot of annihilation of an entire ethnic group. One man's refusal. Beloved, this is the very opposite of how God works. Think about it. We have refused to bow our knee to God. His sentence of death is just. This sentence is unjust in the passage, but his sentence of death is just. And yet in his love, in his mercy, he would respond with sending his son the eternal king, the king of the universe who will become man and be the king of the Jews. He will send him all the way to death, even death on the cross for our rebellion. Our refusing to bow our knee to him resulted to him being hung on a cross. 
that we who are sinners may be forgiven. That we who are rebels may be reconciled. That we who are enemies may become family. Behold the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he would pursue rebels like us. We didn't come to him on our own. He went after us and drew us to himself. Saved us by his grace. Gave us the gift of faith to repent and trust in the king. King Jesus. Oh, what amazing love and what a gracious king Jesus is. So here we see Haman scheming and plotting to kill the Jews. And the very charges that are given against the Jews can very easily be applied to the church in some ways. Because when our allegiance is tested, we go with King Jesus. Haman said that these Jews, they were separate. Well, they were. They were a holy nation according to the Old Covenant. And in the New Covenant, this is applied to the church. We are separate, not that us being better than, but we are separate because God has called us out. Because God has given us a gracious calling. And God calls us to pursue holiness. And the very pursuit of holiness impacts every facet of our lives. To where by God's grace, we do stand out. Not because we look different ethnically, but we look different ethically. I don't even know if that's a word, but oh well, I'm going to run with it. (laughs) We look different in our ethics. Appreciate that, Hunter. Our speech, our conduct, our love. It is completely different, and so we are separate. We stand out. And now that he says that their laws were different. Beloved, we obey God who is king. And in Christ, God is our father and our redeemer. We obey him first and foremost, and out of obedience to him, we follow the law of the land. All the way up to a point, as long as that law doesn't violate God's commands. He said they disobeyed the king. Now, this accusation was generally false. What commands, plural, did the Jews disobey? For it was only Mordecai who refused to bow his knee. The reality is, beloved, the church, we too, we submit to the government up to a point. When the government's commands collide with God's word, we say like the apostles that we're going to obey God and not man because we love him. They tell us to not preach the gospel or expand the proper constituents of marriage or change our teaching on gender or to comply with racism. Beloved, we stand firm on the word of God. And such responses we can expect hostility. You know, in grade school, in education, in grade school and college, you have required classes, and then you also have electives. Required class is a class that you have to take, you have to go through in order to, pa- in order to graduate. Electives, you got options. You know, you don't have to take all of the electives that are being offered. You can choose a few like accounting or yearbook, 
I did yearbook. <laughs> had one page in a yearbook. But electives, you have options. You're not required to take them all to graduate. Beloved, in the Christian life, hostility is not an elective. It is something that all of us who are in Christ are to go through. It is an expectation. It is something that we are to anticipate. It's not an elective you can opt out of. Jesus makes this known in Matthew chapter 10. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, the scripture reading says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. Hostility on account of Christ is normal to the Christian life. This isn't varsity. It is normal. As the enemies of Jesus will oppose his bride. We should expect hostility. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die to yourself daily. It is also a call to suffer for his name. And this is all over the New Testament. It is as we are faithful, as we are courageous, we will experience consequences. The loss of influence. The loss of a reputation, the loss of a job, the loss of family, maybe even our own lives. As I said last week, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep saying it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He is the greatest gain. As we're faithful to King Jesus, we can expect hostility And as it comes, beloved, how should we respond? We should endure persecution. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with his royal signet ring. And this is what the letter said, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. The order was written and sent out. Notice the date. The first month on the 13th day. This is the day before Passover. So the day before Passover, an announcement of the Jews' future destruction was given was given on the day before their annual commemoration of their deliverance. And the edict emphasized genocide. Kill all and spare none. Genocide of the Jews. Beloved, there are spiritual realities behind this edict. 
This is a scheme of Satan. Is he seeking to destroy God's covenant people? This was an attempt to subvert God's promised plan of redemption. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, God made a promise that one would come to reverse the curse, to defeat Satan and deliver his people. And the very means by which it would happen would be through suffering. He said this coming one will be the offspring of Abraham, the son of David. He would be an Israelite. He would be a Jew. He'd be king of His death would bring about a new covenant where God would forgive sins. And so this threat of genocide was a threat to thwart God's promises of redemption. If all the Jews were killed, then the Christ could not come because he is a Jewish Messiah. So this threatened God's promise. But beloved, know and behold that no man, not even Satan himself, can nullify the promises of God. Beloved, this is a dark moment in the passage, and yet the darkest of moments are not too dark for God. The 11th hour is not too late for him. For he will deliver on his promises. Job says it this way. I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. God says it this way in Isaiah 46. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying I will accomplish all of my plans and I will fulfill my purpose. Beloved, the scheme of Satan stands no chance. God is a promise keeper. He is a way maker. And we will see him make a way where there was no way. So regardless of what life looks like, how hard it is as we see it in the text, as we see in our own lives, regardless of things feeling out of control, God has not lost one ounce of control. We can trust him even in the darkest of nights. The singling out of particular people in order to kill is something that Christians know very well. Read throughout church history. This persecution is intense. And if it were to come for us, It would be very tempting to do whatever we can to get out of it, to avoid it. Even renouncing Christ could be a temptation. That would be the worst thing one could ever do. The best thing that Christians can do in the face of persecution on account of Christ is to endure it. The worst thing a Christian can do, the worst thing a person can do is to commit apostasy, to renounce Jesus Christ. It would buy a moment's ease, but it would cost an eternal misery. It is a very bad deal. Jesus is worth every affliction. Think about what he endured for us. That affliction is infinitely and eternally worse than any sort of affliction we could ever experience for his name. May we persevere. 
knowing that what's on the other side of that affliction, what's on the other side of death is far greater than what we could ever imagine. Jim Elliott says that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Life eternal is ours, and it's ours on the other end of the suffering. Beloved, may we endure. So if we're going to endure, how do you endure? I'll say where you set your eyes matter. My son, back in October, he turned four. So for his fourth birthday, we got him a bike. The bike is super dope, looks really nice, and he was really excited about it. And so we began to teach him how to ride the bike, you know, working on balance and working on pedaling. And so we do it in our driveway, and I would get like this really big towel, and I'll tie it around him just so he won't fall, and he's working on it. It looks embarrassing, but y'all, it's, it's helpful. It fits us well. But the thing is, as we are working with Jace in riding his bike, Jace does best when he doesn't look down but when he looks forward. You see, when he looks down at his pedaling, he can hurt himself. But when he looks forward, he sees where he's going. We keep trying to tell him, don't look at what you're doing, think about where you're going. And beloved, we can endure persecution on account of Christ. When we don't look down at what is going around, what is going on to us, what is happening, but we're looking ahead as to where God is taking us. When you look forward, you can endure the suffering that you encounter on account of, on account of Jesus. Paul made that known. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the very way that he endured persecution was that his focus was forward on eternal realities. He says, for our momentary affliction is producing in us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Beloved, in our encouragement of one another, we're seeking to encourage each other to put our eyes on Jesus. Yes, this is hard, the affliction is real, but look to him and you will have strength and you will have hope. In our very gathering, Hebrews chapter, 24, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, says encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our eyes are forward. Our eyes are heavenward. Where our king is at, knowing that our king will one day return. This helps us endure. And Christ holds out this precious promise for us. The promise that we need to take hold of by faith. In Revelation chapter 2, he says, Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Jesus doesn't lie. So may we endure. Verse 14 and 15. The law goes out. Everybody's hearing it. It says the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. 
And here we see contrasting responses. You have celebration and confusion. People were confounded. And it's a great picture, especially the celebration. It's a picture of how Christians are persecuted in the response that enemies give to our persecution. In this age, they delight in our demise. They glory in our grief. As we are unashamed for Jesus, they seek to shame us. Beloved, may we endure. Loving Jesus with our whole life. Loving not our lives even to the point of death because we know that this is not our end. There's a precious promise that he's given that if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. So in the midst of the suffering that we experience, may we hold tight to that truth and remember it. For what is to come is eternal glory. Beloved, may we await. Let's pray.